If you were to enter our house through our garage and walk through our mudroom into our kitchen, and then past the kitchen, you take a right into a room we call our sunroom. It's sort of a a mythical room in Michigan, the sunroom, but (laughs) we we do pray for it to be so named. And against the the far wall of that room, you would find a brown couch. Not any old brown couch, but a very special brown couch. It is special because I put it together myself with nothing except a set of wordless instructions and a single Allen wrench. For yes, indeed, this was an Ikea couch. (laughs) And I loaded up four boxes into the back of our Suburban and fit just perfectly. Had to use all of my geometrical abilities to fit these four boxes and got it home. This was a a couple of years ago. And if you're not familiar with IKEA furniture, the fine household products made by our good Swedish friends, you know that they come in easy assembly instructions, an emphasis not being on the easy. For they don't believe in any sort of verbal plenary inspiration, for they don't use any words. <laughs> just pictures and an Allen wrench, which is just a, like a piece of metal like this, which just has a little hex shape on either end of it. Nothing but drawings of little nuts and bolts and wooden dowels. And so I foolishly began this project around 10 p.m. When, <laughs> yes, it was only 7 o'clock here, but it was 10 p.m., <laughs> And everyone in the house was asleep, and I started with this mess, armed with nothing but Scandinavian pencil drawings. And around about one or two in the morning, I was faced with an existential decision. Would I deviate from the instructions? I had been stuck at one part of the assembly for 45 minutes, which was a good 45 minutes longer than I wanted to be working on the entire project. But I got this picture just didn't make sense. The pieces couldn't possibly fit together the way that they did. I felt like the astronauts in Apollo 13 talking to mission control and get some duct tape. Or how does this actually fit together? And after trying to make sense of the instructions for what seemed like days, I finally came to a dramatic conclusion which changed my life. Ikea was wrong. The wordless, two-dimensional, black-and-white instructions had misled me. They, their picture showed a piece of couch kind of going this way, when in fact I needed the piece of couch that was kind of going this way to put it together. And once I realized that the manual was an error, I felt the color return to my face. I felt like I could face a new day. I felt like I could... Once again, believe that I, as the man of the house, could put together a couch. Everything started to make sense when I accepted that the well-meaning and largely true instructions were not entirely accurate. So here's my question for you. Is the Bible ever like that set of Ikea instructions? Largely true, very helpful. You couldn't, you couldn't do life without it. 
And most often, it's right. But in a few places, when you just can't make sense of it, and everything about your culture and your surroundings would tell you otherwise, you simply have to say, that little part right there is maybe not entirely true. Are there moral requirements in the Bible that no longer work in our world? Can we say the Bible is spot on with the big picture, but when it comes to all of the intricate details, it is only reliable most of the time? Must we affirm that every word of every verse of every chapter and every book of the Bible is from God, inspired, authoritative, unbreakable, and without error? And of course, you know the answer that we must. Follow along as I read from Matthew chapter 5, because in answering any question, and not least of all, a question about Scripture, we would do well to hear what Jesus has to say. Matthew chapter 5, most famous sermon ever preached. Not this sermon right now, but this one I'm reading from. (laughs) Matthew 5, beginning at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away... Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I want to look at these verses under two simple headings. First, we will spend some time looking at Christ and the Bible, and then the Christian and the Bible, and then we will finish with a few points of application. So our first main heading is to look at Christ and the Bible. Jesus states emphatically that he did not come to abolish the tiniest little speck of Scripture. And you see in verse 17, when he says the law or the prophets, the law and the prophets, he is referring to all of the Hebrew Bible, what we would call the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Hebrew Bible is sometimes called the Scriptures, John 10.35, sometimes the Law, John 10.34, sometimes the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms in Luke 24.4, sometimes the Law and the Prophets here and elsewhere in the Gospels and Acts and Romans, and sometimes simply the Law as we have it in verse 18. So when Jesus talks about the Law or the Prophets or speaks of the Law in verse 18, he is talking about more than the Ten Commandments, more than the Moses covenant more than just the commands of scripture he is speaking about all of scripture and since he is talking about his bible and he understood that his words and the apostolic words about him would be as authoritative as his hebrew bible as sinclair so eloquently described to us we can rightly assume that what Jesus says here about his Bible, those 39 books, would apply equally to the 27 books in the New Testament. And what Jesus says about the Bible is remarkable. He says plainly and dramatically, I have not come to abolish 
the law or the prophets. The verb to abolish is the Greek word kataluo. It is used three other times in Matthew. Listen, in Matthew 24, verse 2, Jesus answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another, speaking of the temple, that will not be thrown down, kataluo, thrown down. Or in Matthew 26, 61, this man said, referring to Jesus, I am able to destroy, kataluo, the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Or likewise, in Matthew 27, 40, you who would destroy, kataluo, the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. So you hear the general sense of this word to demolish, to destroy. Jesus is saying, if you think that I have come to destroy one little tiny speck of Scripture, you're wrong. I have not come to abolish them. I have not come to pick them apart or to throw them down or to dismantle them, to loose them or to set them aside. That's not what I'm about, Jesus says. That's not what the kingdom is about. That's not what I've come to do. If you want a Messiah who plays fast and loose with Scripture, you'll have to find one other than Jesus. Now, you may be thinking, well, okay, but Jesus, and you wouldn't say it, but you might think it, but Jesus, what about all the stuff in the Old Testament that we don't really do? Didn't you come to abolish a few things? What about Mark 7, 19? It says that Jesus declared all foods clean. Well, that seems like quite a big change. What about Acts 10 and 11 or Acts 15, where you see that you don't have to become Jewish with all of those markers in order to become a Christian? Or Romans 14, 14, which relativizes certain restrictions about food and about special days. Or what about Hebrews 7, 8, and 9 where the whole temple priestly sacrificial system has become obsolete? How do we understand that Jesus says, I did not come to abolish anything in the Old Testament and yet you don't sacrifice cows? Probably. (laughs) Hopefully. How do we make sense of that? Well, we make sense of it with this word in verse 17 Fulfill. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. It is the Greek word, pleroo. It's a crucial word in Matthew. It occurs 15 times in the book. We don't have time to look at the, all the occurrences. But just give you a sense for how this word is used. Because you know that every word has a semantic range of meaning. Which means that words uh, overlap with other words. And words mean different things depending upon its context. And so, for example, in Matthew one twenty-two, this word, pleroo, fulfill, is used regarding a predictive prophecy about Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament by doing what it said he would do, fulfilling what it predicted. That's the simplest way to understand fulfill, but it's broader than that. We see in Matthew 2.15, this odd reference to this passage in Hosea, out of Egypt, I have called my son. This was to fulfill. And we say, really? Really, Matthew? How did that fulfill? When Jesus went and fled from the the, the decree of Herod and then his family came back, how does that fulfill anything about Hosea saying, out of Egypt, I have called my son, which is a reference to the Exodus. 
Well, because fulfill there does not necessarily mean a predictive, specific prophecy, but rather that Jesus embodies in his person the history of Israel's narrative such that Matthew can rightly say what Hosea was talking about is now embodied in Christ. In Matthew 4.14, we see fulfill carries the sense of doing what is required, or in Matthew 26.54, to bring to completion. So Jesus fulfills Scripture in what He does, what He teaches, what He says, who He is, and how He dies. It refers to more than just specific predictive prophecies. Pleroo means Jesus brings the Scripture to their completion. He brings it to its climax to their intended goal, to its fruition. Fulfillment is not just about doing and saying what the Old Testament predicted. Doug Moo says, the word is used in the New Testament to indicate the broad, redemptive, historical relationship of the new climactic revelation of God and Christ to the preparatory, incomplete revelation to and through Israel. Perhaps the simplest way to understand this word is to look at the word that's in the middle of it, right? In the middle of fulfilled is fill. Jesus fills up and fills out Scripture so that he, though we don't perform sacrifices, did not abolish the Old Testament, but rather filled up and filled out what those sacrifices were intended to convey and in a proleptic way to do. The same word pleroo Jesus uses at the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 23 to say to the scribes and Pharisees, fill up then the measure of your fathers, meaning go ahead and live out what your wicked fathers have done and accomplished. Therefore, Jesus, in a positive way, fills up Scripture and fills out Scripture by showing us what is it about. He does what it says. He lives out what it predicted. He puts into color what previously was in black and white. I've met people who used to watch TV in black and white. It's fascinating. Some of you are here. I, I, I'm so spoiled. I went back to the hotel room and I confess I, I watched a, little, a few minutes of Sports Center, just a few minutes last night, in between my prayer time. And I... And it was, uh, it was an analog TV. It wasn't even HD. I thought, I can't, I can't even watch this. I can't even tell what's happening. It's just, it's just like amoebas talking and floating around. But you didn't know that. I mean, the first time I ever watched it a number of years ago, I thought, this, this, this is better than my own eyes. I can't even, this is, this is like, I, I can see every blade of grass. And same thing, you look back and you don't realize what you didn't have. But Jesus is saying, I fulfilled, I filled up. You were watching this whole movie in black and white. My, my wife, when her mom comes, they love to watch black and white movies. I say, really? You know, do we have that cable channel? That's why we do away with cable, right? We don't have to watch these things. How can you do that? Well, people did it for a long time, and there's a certain nostalgia to it. But Jesus is saying, what you were watching in black and white, now I've put into color. What was shadow now is substance. And if that were not enough of a statement in support of the Scriptures, I've not come to abolish it. 
Jesus takes it up another level in verse 18. He says, truly I say to you. That's an oath formula. Amen. Amen in the Greek. It's the Jewish way of saying, yo, yo, listen up. (laughs) That was how hip I am. Jesus is saying, let me tell you something. What I'm about to tell you is straight up the truth. You will see heaven and earth pass away before you see a little iota or a tiny dot pass away from the law. You will see the cataclysmic destruction of your own space-time continuum before you see anything in this book abolished. That's what he says. Yoda, no, is a Greek letter, but here it's a reference to the Hebrew letter, Yod. It's the smallest Hebrew letter. It looks like a little raised comma. One scholar estimated there were 66,000 Yods in the Old Testament. And Jesus says every single one of them matters. He doesn't want to take away the tiniest speck of the tiniest letter in the whole Hebrew alphabet. Not an iota, not a dot. King James said Johnson tittles. What, what is meant here by a, a dot likely refers to the, the small strokes, kind of a little horn that distinguish different Hebrew letters. Bait from Kaf or Dalit from Resh. Just the tiniest little hook on a letter. You want to know something about fonts? Of course you do. Look at your Bible. I'm willing to, to, to guess that every Bible you're looking at is a serif font. So a serif is a little hook, a little stroke that you find at the bottom of words. So if you look at a word, anything that has a vertical stem going down to the, the line, so the L and H... A, a T, I, N, any of those, you see, just, you look really closely and there's just a, a little horizontal hook. That's called a serif. And there are serif fonts, which are uh, usually in, in books and more formal sort of writings. And then you can have sans serif, like Comic Sans, that font, which uh, none of you should ever use. But the serif is meant to lead the eye across the letters and the words of the page. And it's that little, almost microscopic, little horizontal hook or stroke. That's about the length of the dot or the tittle to which Jesus refers. These horns, these strokes that would distinguish one Hebrew letter from another. And Jesus said, I did not come to set aside any of those little specks. Not any of them. So preacher, when you preach on Sunday, is the best stuff, the best stuff you're giving your people come from the closest attention to the text? When when you get to the really good preaching, is it from the stuff you're drawing out of the text? Or, Or might you be Because there are perhaps preachers like this, even who have good evangelical or reformed theology, but the best stuff that they do from the pulpit is when they start drifting 
from the text. And you know, they're kind of in the text and they're doing their exegesis sort of half-heartedly. And then, and then you know they're getting ready for a rant and they're getting ready for something and they're really going to lay into you about something. The best stuff comes when they are going farthest from the text. I hope that's not the case for me. I know it's a temptation. Hope that's not the case for you. Now, that doesn't mean that your people have to be buried in here and taking notes at every point. At some point, you know, they they, they stop taking notes. That's what Lloyd-Jones would say. You get to the end of the sermon, they're not taking notes anymore because there's a sense of being in the very presence of God speaking to them. But all of that conclusion must be built upon everything that has come through the painstaking look at the text. Is your best stuff in the pulpit from your closest attention? to the text? Or is it the stuff that you came in to the study in the middle of the week and thought, there's something I really want to say. I hope there's a way I can find it in this verse. (laughs) We've all all done that or almost done that. (laughs) Is it coming from your careful attention to all the tiny yodes and specks in this text? Are you so training a people that they know when you preach they're going to have to open their Bibles or swipe them on because they know you're going to be sticking their nose in this. When I preach some places and uh, people don't open the Bible and I try not to be a big, you know, pain about it. There may be any number of reasons that they they might not. But but I often say to people, surely you want to open your Bible. You don't know me. Why would you trust me? Because I wrote a book because I'm speaking up here. Because I have a new suit. Hope you like it. Why? You have no reason to listen to me except that I speak from this book. So be sure to see that what I'm saying is from this book. I had a, a, a very good experience in seminary. Uh, but I remember one time in my preaching class, they were... I'm just going to go out on a limb and hope that they, this isn't what they do at Master's Seminary, okay, as I use this illustration. But here, here's what they had us do. We had to practice. We got in uh, groups of four or five, and we had to practice reading a text and reading it somewhat dramatically. And, you know, it's, you don't want to read it in a, in a boring way, but read it somewhat dramatically. We had to think of kind of some, some gestures and some things we were, we were going to do and, and maybe yodes, dots, or something. You know, something that would really arrest people with the reading of it. And then we, we did our little group and then people would vote which one seemed to be, you know, the, the, the most energetic and attention grabbing. And I remember one of my classmates and he said exactly what I was thinking. He said, but professor, what, won't they be looking at the Bible? <laughs> When we're doing all the woo-woo, when we're doing all the stuff. And then Jesus said to them, Amen, Amen. You know, they're, they're, hopefully it's all lost because they're, they're reading in the text. They, want, they don't want to miss any of the little yodes, any of the jots or tittles that Jesus said, I have not come to set aside. None of the little specks will pass away from one letter and one word and one verse in the whole Bible. Jesus could not state his affirmation of the scriptures in any stronger language. 
Calvin said, sooner shall heaven fall to pieces and the whole frame of the world become a mass of confusion than the stability of the law shall give away. The Christ who undermines the authority of Scripture is a Christ of our own invention. And if you worship a Christ who subverts in any tiny speck of a way the authority of Scripture. J.I. Packer, I got this from him. He said, you're guilty of breaking the second commandment because you have made a God for your own liking. Because the God whom we worship in Jesus Christ does nothing to undermine the authority of Scripture, but says in the most emphatic language possible, I have not come to abolish any of it. Christ and his Bible. Here is the second main heading. The Christian and the Bible. Once we understand Christ's attitude toward the Bible, it is not difficult to understand what our attitude should be toward the Bible. The mature Christian disciple does not relax any of the commands of Scripture. Surely we must understand ways in which the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ, but we do not destroy, abolish anything in all of Scripture. You see in verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The word earlier, kataluo, for destroy, abolish, here for relax is the word luo. Such a wonderfully regular Greek verb. Those of you who have been to seminary have become much acquainted with it. Luo means to relax, to loose, to break. Jesus says, not even the least of these commandments. Did you know that not every sin is the same in God's eyes? You often hear that. It is not biblical. And you can look it up in good Reformation confessions like the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it says very clearly... Jesus is referencing even what the Jews might put into the category of the least of these commands. Remember when, when Jesus is talking about uh, following the commands and he pronounces these woes on the scribes and Pharisees because they're hypocrites. And he says, you tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin and you forget the weightier matters of the law. And he says, these you should have done without neglecting those also of love and justice. He's employing the familiar distinction between weightier matters of the law and and lesser matters of the law. It's not that uh, you can violate some with impunity, but it is to say, as Numbers uh, makes clear, that there are some sins that are are with a high hand and there's others that are unintentional sins. And you only have to look at the penalties for different infractions in the Old Testament to realize that some sins are worse than others, even though in a James 1 sense, if we violate any commandment, we are guilty of breaking all of it. In that sense, any violation of an eternally holy God puts us at an eternal distance from Him. But don't fall into this cultural confusion of thinking, well, every sin is just kind of the same in God's eyes. No, judging by God's reaction, say, in the Old Testament, it was not as bad to lose your temper with your children as it was to sacrifice them to Molech. One was worse than the other. Doesn't mean we do one and that's okay, but one was worse than the other. That's why Jesus can say that it will be worse for you to those cities, Bethsaida, Chorazin, for you saw these miracles and yet you did not believe. But Jesus says, 
Even the little stuff, so-called. I don't want you to relax any of it. Listen, you will never be relevant for messing around with Scripture. Never. It is not hip to flirt with disobedience. It is not gospel-centered to celebrate all the ways you violate God's commands. Jesus does not think you're cool. He thinks you are least in the kingdom of heaven. If you have a careless, casual attitude to any one of his commands. You want to talk about kingdom-minded? We want kingdom disciples. We want to be kingdom people. Well, to be kingdom-minded means a lot of different things. But I can tell you based on God's Word here that if you're not reading your Bible, not giving a rip about your Bible, thinking you know better than your Bible, provoking people to ignore little parts of their Bible, that is not kingdom living. And then he says in verse 20, some who are not even in the kingdom, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, and that's a perplexing verse for Protestants, but the the meaning is really rather straightforward. Jesus is going to go on in the rest of chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount to explain the so-called righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and then over and over in six different antitheses will say, but I say to you, okay, they're trying to follow the oral tradition, but I say to you, here's what the heart of God's Word teaches. And so when Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, he is not saying that you must earn so many holiness points to get into heaven. We've already would have seen at the beginning of chapter 5, the Beatitudes, that this blessing comes to those who mourn for their sins, those who are merciful, but rather he is saying, as my disciple, as one who follows me, you must have a righteousness that is more than just a perfunctory kind of righteousness, just sort of checking off a box. I want this word to get into your heart. Legalism is salvation by law-keeping. And it is an anti-gospel, and we must preach against it in our own hearts and in our churches. But what we often mean, or others mean by legalism, is someone more serious about obedience than I am. (laughs) Jesus is not against law-keeping. He is against hypocritical law-keeping. He is against man-made law-keeping. He is against a spirit of censoriousness toward those who struggle to keep the laws. But he is not, and never has been, never will be, against keeping the law. To be a follower of Jesus is to be someone who takes all of the Bible and all of the commands of the Bible seriously. And I hope your people know it. And I hope you preach a grace that saves a wretch like me and a grace that leads them home. Not a half a grace, not a half a Christ. A Christ who justifies, a Christ who sanctifies. Let me finish with three points of application. One, we set aside nothing in the Bible because of Christ. We set aside nothing in the Bible because of Christ. We must not say, well, here is a bunch of stuff in Leviticus which we ignore because it is in Leviticus. 
And you've heard the arguments. Well, what about you eat shellfish? And what about you wear fabric that's made from uh, two different strands? Or, Look, we ought to be more sophisticated than that. To understand that Jesus did nothing to marginalize or set aside the book of Leviticus. In fact, he quotes from it from more than any other book. Love your neighbor as yourself comes from Leviticus. Now, for all of those commands, sometimes called civil or ceremonial commands, how they are fulfilled in Christ, yes, Christians have thought about that for a long time, and there are answers that we can give. But we can never give this answer. That's Leviticus, so we don't worry about it. No, everything, even the strange parts in the Pentateuch, you know, build a parapet around your roof. Well, I've been driving around here. I don't see many of those. But every command, even the strange ones, have something for us to learn. Because what is the whole point of saying, put some kind of fence around your roof? Because in the ancient world, and you don't have air conditioning, and how do you get uh, cooled off? You go up and you stand out on your roof and you get some of the prevailing breezes. And so God has a command. If people are going to be out on your roof, why don't you have a little fence? Because that would be loving your neighbor so nobody falls off. And I can tell you with my kids, I would appreciate that. <laughs> Otherwise, they will climb up onto your roof. Can't tell you how many times I've gone outside. This is literally how bad of a parent I am. Ian, what? you're on our roof. I told you not to go on a roof. Well, I just, I climbed the gutter. What are you, well, I'll give you a buck if you clean out the gutter. So then it helps. It works. <laughs> I guess while you're up there. which may or may not be in violation of the parapet rule, but you understand what I'm saying? You, you can't set aside and just say, well, we're, we're in the New Testament. We're, we're Christians. We don't do that anymore. No, everything in the Old Testament is for us, even if it is fulfilled in Christ and has an, an application that is somewhat removed from the ancient Near East. We must not make that false distinction between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. We must not discount anything in the Bible because Christ would have us do so for shame. We cannot set aside the Old Testament miracles or the chronology or the history or the genealogy or the cosmology or the anthropology or any of it. We must not doubt the power of God's Word. You remember, in His greatest spiritual battle prior to the cross, in the wilderness, tempted by the devil, what did our Lord do but three times He quoted Deuteronomy to the devil? And we think that we can make it in life without hiding the Word of God in our hearts when the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, when tempted, did not call upon thousands of angels. He quoted Deuteronomy to the devil. We do not set aside one tiny little speck because of Christ. Second point of application. We view everything in the Bible in light of Christ. We set aside nothing in the Bible because of Christ. We view everything in the Bible in light of Christ. We ask ourselves in any text, how does this point to Jesus? How does this prepare the way for Jesus? How does Jesus live this out? How will Jesus help me live this out? Do you see here in the Sermon on the Mount, in one brilliant paragraph, Jesus establishes for us the two most foundational elements for Christian discipleship, namely the authority of God's Word and the authority of Christ. And please understand that they are not opposed. If I can quote D.A. Carson, 
quite literally and seriously. I don't mean this to be flippant or to be funny. He once said, damn all false dichotomies to hell. I use that in the literal sense of the word because that's where they come from. These sort of false dichotomies that would pit the word of God against the spirit of God. Or these false dichotomies that would pit the word enfleshed and the word inscripturated. Oh, let us not think we are somehow more clever than Jesus. Do you run into people sometimes? who say, well, you guys, you have the word, you know, the Bible. I have capital W word, Jesus. Okay, you can have your little word. I'll have my big word. As if the two were somehow in conflict. The word the word is God's dif- divine disclosure inscripturated in the text of the Bible in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Both the word inscripturated and the word in flesh are of divine origin. Both are utterly authoritative. Both are enduring and unchanging and both cannot be defeated or destroyed. So we view everything in the Bible in light of Christ. If you want to find Christ, you must run to the Bible. There are no shortcuts. And if you run to the Bible, run there to find Christ. We set aside nothing in the Bible because of Christ. We view everything in the Bible in light of Christ. And we defend the Bible third and finally. We defend the Bible so we can preach Christ. So we can preach Christ. We're coming to the the end of many days of many glorious texts and glorious sermons and we'll have one more tonight. And then you will go back home. How many of you are the regular preacher at your church? Raise your hand. A lot of you. How, How many of you will do some preaching this year in your church? How many of you want to preach someday? A whole bunch of you. We got most of you covered. And you will go back and you'll be fed. And and you'll go back and you know what? You'll sit at your desk or you'll sit in your chair. And you'll probably hit some of the same brick walls that you you were hitting before you came here. You go, I'm so excited. And then you'll, this is still hard. And I still don't feel like I'm Sinclair Ferguson. And I've never met the queen. And you'll realize the, the limits of your own gifting as I do every Sunday. And you will have those moments where you feel like, am I really doing the right thing? In all honesty, this is not a feigned sort of humility. I get out of the pulpit 98% of the time. And I think, what did I just do? (laughs) What was that? Maybe that's pride. Maybe it's the devil. Maybe it's humility. It's probably all all the above. what, what, What was really going on there? It's hard. It's hard to do it another week and another week for years and decades and to preach it with authority. You know what it says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. 
When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. This has always been the characteristic of great preaching. It could mean you're loud or you're soft or you're fast or you're slow. You could have any manner of personality. That's not what it's about. Authority is something different. Authority is what draws people to preaching and it is what repels people from preaching. If you give a little talk, you tell a few stories, you show a few clips, you speak in vague generalities, no one will mind. Least of all the devil. No one will be offended and no one will drop anything to hear this word. But if you dare to preach with authority, some people will be incensed and others will be intrigued and they will listen. You know that story about Benjamin Franklin, not any kind of evangelical Christian or a Christian at all, but yet he had this fascination with George Whitfield. And one time, as Franklin continued to go to hear George Whitfield preach, and somebody said to Franklin, why do you keep going to hear George Whitfield preach? You don't believe a word that he says. To which Franklin replied, I know, but he does. Just the fact that he spoke, to quote McShane as a dying man to dying men. I may hate what he says, but I can't ignore what he has to say. You will go back to your pulpit and some of you will have suffering to encounter in your church, in your life, in your family. You will struggle to see other churches down the road growing and yours is, is so small. You will have many hard cases before you will have hard people who don't encourage you. You may be here feeling hurt, beat up. That does not mean that you cannot preach with authority. Think of everything they might have said, everything that the crowds might have marveled at at the conclusion of this sermon. They might have said, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who was really smart as one who was very creative, as one who could really tell a story, as one who was quite humorous, as one who was so sensitive, as one who had the finest rhetoric and oratory, as one who was filled with the first-rate scholarship, as one who had all of the best learning. They could have marveled at any of that, but they did not. They marveled that he spoke as one who had authority. And it is how we preach as Christ, and it is how we ought to preach Christ. Of course, we do not have his authority. We must decrease, he must increase. The first thing John the Baptist confessed freely is that I am not the Christ, and so we must confess it to ourselves, to our congregations. We are not the Christ. And if you forget that, ask your wife. <laughs> so, so we are not Christ. We can read the same book he read and the same books which his spirit inspired. Not as the scribes. Who are the scribes? Oh, they had a long history. They were secretaries. They transcribed legal contracts. They were official compilers. He was a person of education and means. By Jesus' day, they were the teachers of the law. 
They were like professors and we're all thankful for professors. They were academics. They studied, transcribed, codified, passed on the oral traditions. They were scholars. And they were also like lawyers. They were responsible for the administration of the law and they decided cases for the Sanhedrin. They were attorneys and they were academics. And we have a number of each in my church and I'm thankful for them. And to a degree, preaching has uh, an academic component. It's steeped in good learning. It has uh, a lawyerly component with persuasion. But brothers, you know that the Bible does not call us to be academics or to be attorneys, but to be heralds, to stand up in front of the people Sunday after Sunday and say, hear ye, hear ye, I have a word from King Jesus for you. That's why it is worship, the chief act of worship, the preaching of God's word, not because there's anything special about any of us, but because it is God speaking and where God's word is present, God is present. And so the chief act of worship is to listen and submit one's life to what God has to say. You're a herald. You're a herald. And you'll try to improve and you'll try to be persuasive and you'll try to get all the the best points and marshal them there. Do it. Work hard. This is hard work. But don't forget who you are. To preach as one who has authority because the whole point of having this is so that we might declare the whole counsel of God and lift up Christ. Don't preach your story. Don't preach your doubts. Don't preach your theories. Don't preach your programs. Don't even preach your commentaries. Preach Christ. Like the bronze serpent raised in the wilderness. Raise up Christ. That's who people need to see. That's who your congregation needs to hear. Not just all of your fine exegesis. Use all of that. That you might in the most effective way preach Christ. Tell them of their Savior. Tell them of the one through whom God made all things. Tell them of Christ. Call them to Christ. You know what Lloyd-Jones says. We don't want to be just those who... Who, pre- who preach of the gospel, but preach the gospel. I'm just setting it aside over here. Sort of I, I have this, this book and I'm, I'm looking at it and, and I have this Christ and I want to tell you about him, but you lift him up and you present and you tell your people week after week that they're sinners, but there is such a glorious Savior. If they would repent and they would turn, there is one who has given himself for sinners, preach Christ and lift him up with confidence, knowing that the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given did not come to set aside any authority of the least pinstroke of holy scripture. And so when you leave here, tomorrow or tonight or Sunday and you return home full confident in an inerrant word you stand upon that word and you stand under that word and you preach through that word that you might tell to a dying lost sin soaked salvation starved world of Christ do you know him you're walking with him finding him in here preaching's hard 
pastoral ministry is hard. And this is what keeps me going. Is I get to stand up in the privilege of all privileges. And I get to tell people about the most glorious person who ever walked this earth. And you know him. And you've heard of him when two billion people have not. Preach this word. Lift up Christ. And leave the rest to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a joy and privilege that we should call you our Father. Oh, strengthen these brothers just as I need your help and strength. For the task you have given us is a noble one and it is a grind and it is filled with many temptations and pitfalls and discouragements. We don't want to be abrasive or obnoxious nor do we want to be cowardly. Help us to preach not with a manufactured sort of loudness, not with a, a bravado, but with a real authority, a confidence that comes not from ourself, not from dint of personality, but from an unshaking conviction that God is true, though every man be a liar. And everything you have given to us in your word is true and righteous altogether. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.